Artificial intelligence is impacting our everyday life, whether it's autonomous vehicles or personal assistants like Siri. AI is becoming more ingrained in our daily life. Should it be ingrained in our politics? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished uh, Published TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Artificial intelligence is evolving as our society does and is in some cases making our lives easier by doing those menial tasks. AI has advanced though to the point of actually seeming to learn its way out of a problem. It's done through the use of algorithms to predict what might come next. Now imagine putting that technology and ability into our political discussion. What could go wrong? While 2020 will go down in history for the pandemic, it also saw the introduction of the world's first virtual politician, Sam. He ran in the 2020 New Zealand general election. Now, for some, the introduction of AI to politics will bring us back to more evidence-based decisions opposed to those uh, at the whim of others. Our unpublished vote question asks, how do you feel about artificial intelligence being used in Canadian politics? 7.1% were okay with it. 875 not okay, and just 5.4% unsure. However, you're watching or listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss artificial intelligence in politics, Jesse Hirsch is a researcher and public speaker. His research interests focus, uh, interests focus largely on the intersection of technology and politics, in particular, artificial intelligence and democracy. And Dr. Emma Bryant is a visiting research associate in human rights at Bard College in New York City. And I thank you both for joining us. And, and first off, we'll talk with you uh, first, Jesse. Uh, are you surprised by the results? Now, it's not scientific, but it, you know, this, it's a reflection of our viewers and listeners. And 87.5% say they're not okay with AI in, uh, in politics. Does that surprise you or no? Not at all. I think there is a general anxiety, apprehension about the role that AI is playing in our lives. Uh, in particular, the notion of automated decision making, uh, which as a subset of AI, I think is something that also freaks people out. But I, I would uh, unfortunately terrify those people even more by saying <laughs> AI has been used in politics now for a couple of decades. AI is being integrated into government at a very rapid pace. And where citizens may feel that they are entitled to having a say as to whether this happens, unfortunately, it's happening so fast that citizens are not being consulted and they're not being asked. So uh, to your point, I think those numbers are, uh, are they resonate, uh, not just in mm -hmm. Canada, but around the world, in part because people do feel as if this technology is advancing and they're not being consulted. What do you think, Emma? Are you surprised by the uh, overwhelming support for it not to be involved in politics or? Not at all. I think no. with the, uh, you know, scandal that we helped, uh, that I helped to reveal in 2018 over Cambridge Analytica, you know, people have obviously, you know, been very, very wary since that of uh, what these uh, technologies can do. Now, I, I think that, you know, um, technologies like artificial intelligence have a hell of a lot of scope for uh, being very beneficial in our societies. Um, we can use, um, you know, data is not bad. <laughs> data can be used for the public good. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, substantial public health, for instance, purposes for which we can apply data. And 
And um, it might not be, you know, best to necessarily um, involve the um, the public in every single decision, uh, because actually sometimes these technologies are very difficult to understand and to be able to communicate um, and to make decisions very, very rapidly when you're in the middle of a public health crisis, sometimes you need to act. However, um, you know, sometimes the uh, uses that, that AI have been put to um, have been, you know, without proper consultation with with um, experts uh, who are independent, who are, you know, critical of this. And um, governments need to be engaging with the criticisms that have been made uh, when they have been applied, um, you know, in in various different contexts. So, um, you know, artificial intelligence has been abused and misused and has been just actually wrong sometimes. Mm so often uh, we see algorithms that um, you know do not reflect what they're claiming do not predict the things they are claiming that they do um, and also you know they can be applied to purposes that um, you know infringe on our rights so there needs to be a broad public debate around these things but um, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know rolling out any advancement um, is necessarily wrong uh, you know, in this kind of way. Right. Okay. Now, now, Jesse, you had mentioned that AI has been in elections for decades. Now, you know, we can go back to 2012. Uh, I, I guess the Obama, um, the Obama election campaign had, had used a bit of AI uh, in terms of targeting, but can you go back further than that? Absolutely. And, and what I'm talking about is public opinion research and public okay. opinion polling. Right. I mean, you know, statistics and data science is not new. Algorithms and, and AI are decades old, right? It goes back into the 70s. What's new is, is data, the volume of data we have and the computational power that allows for these types of models to be increasingly accurate. But the influence of public opinion polling on on elections and politics has has been toxic for quite some time, right? It, mm. it, 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 it makes it difficult to have diverse debates. It makes it difficult to have politics that's based on policy rather than politics based on personality. So, you know, while the impact of AI is accelerating, is becoming even more powerful, I think it is important we recognize that it's already been playing a role, certainly in campaigns and the way in which political parties choose which issues to promote and that they don't promote issues based on conviction, they promote issues based on polling data, on polling response, on the likelihood of winning. And that has had an incredibly destructive impact on the health of our democracy and the viability of our policies. But, you know, the Cambridge Analytica uh, incident just illustrated that even more because it suggested that public opinion polling no longer depends upon opinion surveys. It now incorporates social media data. It now incorporates data that people did not consent to having, you know, used as part of these processes. And I think that's alarming and part of, part of why we're having today's conversation. But I would argue it's the tip of the iceberg that you know we, we're in a, a situation in which because governments have neglected the kind of oversight of technology companies and the public interest research that looks at the social harms of algorithms and the impacts of algorithms you know we're kind of in a black box society in which we're trying to reverse engineer these algorithms we're trying to reverse engineer the influence of these digital platforms and understand their impact on politics when you know 
nothing stopped, right? Everything's still mm -hmm. moving forward. So I think that's why there's a crisis of trust, a crisis of confidence when it comes to the way in which we use these tools. Emma, uh, crisis of trust is, is, a, is a great way of putting it. I, I'd suggested uh, the public has a wary view of artificial intelligence. Why do you think that is? Well, because I, I mean, actually as well, I would say that there's a nuance here that um, is really important. With the Cambridge Analytica case, um, the real horror of it is how they were abusing data and the scope of and potential for um, what could be done beyond that. Um, so for instance, revelations that came out included um, the use of, um, of, of mental health uh, categories for potential targeting, uh, targeting of neurotic people, of people with um, you know, anxiety disorders and things like this. Um, and also, you know, not necessarily having consent, um, as Jesse pointed out. Um, now, I would say that beyond just whether or not you have consent is, is you, you have to also be going one step further and looking at how we protect people, because people might well consent to giving information that, you know, indicates their mental health without really understanding quite how that could be used against them. Um, and we have to, you know, um, mental health data is protected in most democracies, uh, I should say that. Um, yeah. However, there are ways you can infer this kind of thing um, from data that is out there. And it's very, very difficult to know exactly how data is being processed when, uh, you know, these, these kinds of tools are so black boxed. There is no like real uh, ability to uh, interrogate the algorithms and, um, mm -hmm. And, and provide proper oversight. And when you know campaigns are you know being run, like it's a zero sum game. You know it's win win or lose. And uh, you know people who are uh, running campaigns have everything uh, at stake. So you know the chances that they will take um, are huge. Whereas governments may be slightly more cautious about how they might use data uh, in democracies, at least, um, because they then have the you know scandal of not getting elected because you abused um, your your powers, for instance. Um, so so there's more to lose, I think, for for governments than there is for politicians who you know have everything to win if they if everything to gain if they win. Um, also in in terms of like the the types of use of data that we need to be thinking about, we also need to be thinking about into the future um, uh, the uh, the role of AI in actually you know determining the the content and writing you know so at the moment the creative process is is mostly done by humans and the technology isn't quite so advanced that the um the algorithms can write the propaganda itself can't write articles that are really convincing to us yet but the um the machine learning is advancing so rapidly and and computer technology is advancing so rapidly that we can see into the future that um it's likely that uh they will be able to generate, auto-generate uh, content that is really very much um, honed to you automatically without human involvement. That's something that worries me a lot, even more so than the um, uh, these kinds of uh, deep fakes that people have been talking so much about in the media. Why does this uh, worry you more? Um, because I think it's, it's I, I don't know, I think the, um, the whole deep fake thing is 
is important, mm -hmm. but I think it's much easier to get away with with articles and things like this posts um, and making them look uh, look genuine. Um, whereas things that are, you know, a deep fake of a prime minister or something that is going to be exposed fairly quickly when they say, hey, I didn't do that or didn't say that. Mm. Um, now, um, you know, that doesn't mean automatic detection is, is very, very strong. And yes, it probably will have got halfway around the world by then. But, you know, when it comes mm. to texts, you can highly target this in a way that, you know, I think um, could be very, you know, worrying. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's going to be spreading on Facebook, but uh, could be in your emails, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it can be delivered through any mechanisms and things like that. I think the, um, the immediacy of how it would regenerate and learn according to you uh, is something that I think um, adds extra concern because if the um if the propaganda can be basically based around everything that you are and auto-generated and and um and and honed around uh convincing you according to everything that they know about you um automatically then i think this would be very very disturbing at the moment i don't think we're quite at that stage yet right. um, getting there i would say Okay, Je Jesse, ethics and artificial intelligence. Now, Google recently let go two people working specifically on AI ethics. Now, can big companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera, be trusted to use this technology ethically? No. Okay. I mean, that's an easy question. Well, because they're not accountable to society. They're only accountable to their shareholders, right? And their shareholders and their relationship with their shareholders you know, is different than a government's relationship with its subjects or its citizens. Now, you know, AI and ethics is a bit of a paradox. I, I often argue that AI ethics is something created by the AI industry so that they can justify what they were going to do anyway, but be able to say that it's eth ethical and therefore it's okay to do it. I mean, if I am to believe in a democratic society, then I think it's essential for that democratic society to restrain and regulate power. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's tremendous power to be found in these digital companies, tremendous power to be found in these digital platforms. And with great power comes great responsibility. And I think a democratic society has the responsibility to oversee and regulate mm -hmm. such power. Part of that was what you guys were talking about in terms of the influence on news and the influence on people's perception of reality and their participation in the democratic polity. But I think it also reflects uh, the privacy concerns, the harm concerns. You know, the ethics stuff of AI, I, I think, should not be the domain of private companies. I think it should be the domain of governments, yeah. right? I think parliament is the appropriate place to debate AI ethics. I think that federal governments uh, are, and the Canadian government, to give credit, right? The Canadian government released something called the Algorithmic Impact Assessment. And this is a tool that allows governments or companies to look at the impact that their AI will have. And it's a very, you know, it's, it's early days, but it's a very powerful tool that the Canadian government has created and made available to the world because no company was ever going to do it, right? Facebook is never going to say, well, let's create a tool to see how Facebook impacts the world. No. And that's why I think there's a role in governments, there's a role in, in, in parliaments debating AI ethics. And that's where very briefly, you know, I, in this controversy where Google fired two of their ethicists, 
part of me actually supports Google because in both cases, these ethicists, you know, violated corporate policy. And if you believe in ethics, you believe that everybody should be fairly treated according to the policy. So if you're an ethicist at Google and you break corporate policy, well, should you be above the rules? Should you be, you know, above the law? I, again, I'm digressing, but yeah. I, I feel that the field of AI ethics is incredibly important, but should not be left to private companies and instead should be what our elected officials debate in our parliaments. What do you think, Emma? You want to jump in? I, I, to some degree, I agree. Um, it certainly should be the domain of parliament. However, um, you know, and, and, and I mean, I'm a cynic, okay? I'm, I, I don't think any, any company is ethical. I mean, that ultimately they are going to listen to the bottom line, which is why those two mm. people got fired. However, <laughs> um, companies do need to understand ethics and what their role should be. And one of the, the issues I think for big companies like that is they, um, uh, you know, translating policies and laws and, you know, how to develop technology into, you know, anticipating what is going to be an ethical problem needs to be part of their development. You can't like just say, well, well, the law is such and parliament decided that ethically, you know, we are allowed to do this much because you're going to go to the extent of the law. And if you do that, like Facebook did, let's face it, went to the extent of the law, that is probably going to take you into unethical areas. And then you're going to have legislation, which is going to, you know, like be problematic for you and regulatory responses and so on. So in a way, like companies have to build in the ethics as they're developing to anticipate um, what is going to follow, because actually, you know, well, if they want to be responsible companies. Um, and I think in order to like, please shareholders that actually they are um, gonna doing things that are gonna keep them within the extent of the law ultimately, and also, you know, not have PR crises. Now that's not, ethics uh, isn't the same as law and, and um, public um, reaction. However, if you are straying into unethical territory, you are increasing your chances of, of running foul of both of those. So I think it's helpful for these companies definitely to have ethics teams. Um, I don't think that they necessarily are the answer for us, however, um, but they definitely need somebody guiding them on these issues. And all, right. all I was suggesting uh, in agreeing with your general premise is that that should be mandated by law. That okay. there's no reason to not have a law that says when you're designing a powerful product, you must have an inclusive design process that includes ethicists in your design process. Because right now, on a voluntary basis, those scum are not doing that. And, and that's why that's why you have a democratic government make a law mandating what you just proposed. I'll support that law. Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, you know, like what we talk about government oversight, and and I wonder because I, I, I there's a couple of things here. I know Canada is starting to get a lot more investment financially in terms of AI, as uh, we've got hubs in in Toronto, Montreal, Quebec City, uh, and of course the government loves, Edmonton and Edmonton. Of course, governments love jobs and they love that. But the thing is, and and I'll be the first to say that AI is, is an incredibly complex. Uh, even just the thought. So trying to break that down, I'm wondering is, is the lack of government oversight because the government doesn't really know how it works, what it's, what, where it's going to go, that kind of a thing. 
The companies don't know. The companies don't understand their own algorithms. Like, you know, opening this up and articulating it and, 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 and enabling anything like a meaningful audit of algorithms is incredibly difficult. It's not impossible, I think. I'm in the camp that says it's mm. not impossible. Um, but also, I'm not a data scientist. Um, but from what I've you know, read in my research, I would say it's not impossible. And they absolutely need to make it so that these companies perhaps are not quite so powerful that, that it is impossible. But at the moment, I think we're in a position where like, not only is it proprietary and so therefore they black box it because you know, of reasons of competition and so forth, but also it is just so complex that, that the companies and the, the data scientists don't understand their own algorithms because they are going beyond what is understandable for them and a, mm. you know, see i i disagree ahead, with that entire premise uh, <laughs> on multiple levels and, right. and i'll start with the idea being governments and and i'm going to talk about the canadian government because sure. that's where i live yeah the canadian federal government has tremendous expertise right there are some brilliant people who work for the federal civil service who are more than able to provide the regulatory framework that as a society we require. The politicians, well, that's where you deal with clueless people, okay. right? That, that's where you deal with the incompetence. And unfortunately, in a democratic society, the government can't do anything unless the politicians give them authority to do so. And, and that's the paradox we're currently in. You know, the uh, industry likes to present this myth that AI cannot be explained, that AI cannot be scrutinized. And that is total nonsense. Right, that, that is a political play done by the industry to avoid government scrutiny. That it is perfectly possible for non-experts to explain what AI does using metaphor and narrative to the extent that the processes of that AI can be held accountable. So, you know, again, I part of my role as a mm -hmm. cyberpunk is to disbelieve what the technology industry says. Part of my role as a small d Democrat is to imagine how a democratic government could represent the people and ensure that we all have rights responsibilities. And that's where I reject entirely the narrative presented by the technology industry that neither technology can be regulated nor AI can be explained. And our friends in Europe are, are, are demonstrating that, right? The GDPR was an excellent first step in creating this regulatory framework. And it does include the right to explain Right, which under current European law, any European citizen who has an algorithm make a judgment about them has as their right the ability to demand that that algorithm explain why it came to that judgment. And if the company cannot comply, they face huge fines. An excellent example of democratic governments saying to industry, we reject your narrative, we are gonna protect our citizens and here's how. So to answer your question, James, I think it's political will, right? It's the political will to do these things. And that's where in North America, we've had a couple of decades of techno-libertarianism in which we assume that the internet cannot be regulated. We assume that technology companies know best and our democracy is dying as a result of that negligence. And how do we change that? Oh, oh sorry. Go ahead, Emma. Go ahead, Emma. I just That's wanted fine. to follow up and say sure. I agree with you. Like, I mean, I think that they they can do this. Um, and the but the the one thing that I wanted to follow up on was was that um, I don't think governments are as equipped as you say they are. Uh, civil servants, as you, you specified, I, from my experiences with defense, mm -hmm. um, I think that they are. Sorry, your experience with 
with defense. Yes. Well, the military is its own bastion of incompetence. I agree. But I, I was talking about sort of, you know, if we were to take the U.S. government or the Canadian government or even the British government, yes, there's a lot of people deliberately stupid, but there are many really wise people. If we were to empower them and promote them and, and, and give them, you know, the tools for their job, they could do it. The problem with the military is they get very um, excited about uh, technologies. <laughs> <laughs> and they got a lot of the money too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They want to spend it. <laughs> and, um, you know, you end up in these arms races where, you know, innovation is the exciting thing and so on. Real innovation happens with writing policy, uh, as I always say. But, you know, like it's actually about what you're talking about. Um, it's, it's about, you know, how do we develop limitations? <laughs> and, and nobody likes to hear that really when they are, you know, um, no. in the military. <laughs> in the, Department of Defense or whatever, but um, actually, it's it's really about you know how do we write in restraints for this kind of thing, and it is doable. It is possible. I would point out the GDPR's flaws though, in that like I know so many companies that are working in in the influence industry, what I largely call the influence industry, who are not registered, yeah. who. You know, I'm I'm going through like compiling a database. I've got like over 700 companies now in my database. Not yeah, that yeah, yeah. Like, just that I'm, you know of. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they are not registered under the GDPR yeah. with these uh, with the data authorities. Yeah. So, and and how do you how do you require the company to um, like interrogate its processes if you don't know they have your data in the first place? Yeah. And not doing anything. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I did say GDPR was just a first step, a baby step, but better than we got here in North America, you know? Yeah, no kidding. All right. All right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about uh, government oversight. And, you know, obviously in, in Canada, the US, there, there, there's not a ton of it right now. Is there a country in the world right now that's that's got a handle on on the safe use of artificial intelligence for its people? Because you know, we look at that article in Medium where the Dutch government was actually forced to resign for using improper algorithms. And and Lord knows what that, like, where, where's the confidence so, in the government there? If, I mean, the short answer is it's happening at a municipal level, mm -hmm. right? So we're seeing that there's, there's something called the, the Coalition for Digital Cities, although they may have since uh, reworked their name, but it's Barcelona, Amsterdam, uh, New York, uh, Berlin. So municipalities, because municipal governments are much closer to their citizens, because mm -hmm. they have greater flexibility in their programs, where I think this innovation is happening legitimately is on sort of mega cities, on the type of large municipalities that have the resources that compare to small nation states, but have greater flexibility in terms of their ability to come up with policies. And Barcelona's the leader in this, like Barcelona's participatory data initiatives and open source data initiatives really anticipate AI and anticipate sort of the laws and frameworks that need to uh, res restrain AI to use Emma's sort of language. Um, but on a national scale, like on a democratic side, kind of no, like France is the one I hold up the most, not because they figured it out, they haven't. But what France is doing that I like is they are recognizing that if this happens on only inside of government, they'll fail. 
right. they have to do it in concert with industry, in concert with academia, in concert with civil society, and that whatever government learns, they have to instantly share it with civil society so that civil society learns it at the same time so that you sort of raise all boats and you get every, because, you know, the, the fundamental defense against everything we've talked about today is literacy and critical thinking, right? Both inside of the government, but also in the citizenry. And France kind of gets that, right? They're kind of sort of creating a public education platform, a mobilization <clears throat> platform that is imperfect, flawed, has all the trappings of French politics that you could imagine, but I, I think it's worth uh, uh, supporting, worth recognizing. But outside of that, I, I personally am not impressed with anything that other democratic governments are doing. But Dr. Brian, I, I'm curious if there's stuff that you've that has caught your interest. Emma? Well, I'm very much a privacy campaigner and these digital, you know, the, the um, smart cities and, and so on, I find really disturbing, quite honestly, having lived in New York. It's, I mean, really troubles me the amount of surveillance that you are under constantly in that city. Now, I obviously am from the UK. We have a lot of security cameras in the UK mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Um, but I especially find it troubling in the United States legal context without the GDPR. You know, I, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are very concerned about what's going on in, in uh, New York City. Um, a lot of campaigners trying to resist this. And, you know, I think, you know, they're right. They're, you know, without having a GDPR kind of context, uh, the protecting people, um, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, surveillance being used against protesters, um, you know, fa facial recognition algorithms in the United States being used. Um, I, I moved into my accommodation and um, discovered on arrival that you have to um, use an app to be able to access your mail. Uh, and it's, you know, you're supposed to log in with Facebook. And, you know, in, if you go into the mail room, there's like a, a I'm not going to say the company name, but a, a camera on you and uh, you're using facial recognition databases and you cannot get your mail without using this. So there's no issue of consent. You're not like mm. realizing this yeah. before you move in even. The, the, the all encompassing nature of this is really disturbing. You know, absolutely mm -hmm. no consent. In all France, right. maybe they have this, um, you know, more dialogue about it but i don't think these are things that you really can consent to in a meaningful way uh they've become so uh you know pervasive yeah pervasive mm. and, and necessary to participate in society that it's very difficult not to and and also to understand what is being done with the you know photos that are being taken of you in the film it, people can't, don't have the time let, let alone uh knowledge to really understand uh you know how, how their right. data used uh jesse can ai enhance democracy or will it erode it it can definitely enhance it right and, and that's where it is even though dr bryant and i have both been expressing our concerns about the the decline of democracy the very real decline i am a certainly optimistic that as a tool ai could be used either way right that it really depends upon how it's used it depends upon the context in which it's used you know, there's uh, all sorts of cyberpunk authors who imagine utopias, who mm -hmm. imagine democratic renaissance as a result of data-driven policy, evidence-based policy, and AI. So yes, I, I, 
I very much think it's possible, but I don't think it's where we're currently headed, right? That it, it would right. require a complete change in direction in terms of the values of society. And the one I mentioned earlier, which I'll mention again, is participation and inclusivity, right? If the design of AI was inclusive and participatory, if the use of data was inclusive and participatory, if, you know, when, let's say, a community were to have an AI application come in, there was a consultation period months before it started on how to configure, on how to construct, on how to build the technology, you know, then you could have really positive outcomes. Then you could have genuine empowerment. And so, you know, that's where governments do have a certain ability to say, hey, this technology is going to help us all. And there's some truth to that, but not without effective regulation, not without effective mm -hmm. oversight. You know, uh, for example, here's a no brainer here in Canada, but something many people don't link to AI, broadband access, right? Like yeah. universal internet, affordable internet to make sure that everyone in every community is able to access the technology and resources available. The fact that there are still so many people in Canada who are basically second class citizens because their internet sucks that very much limits their ability to learn about AI, to use AI mm -hmm. and to participate in the dawn of this AI society. So while theoretically, yeah, 100% we could be using this technology for good, but I don't see that happening right now. And it would really take a lot of transformative work for that to take place. All right, I want to thank our guests for joining us on Unpublished TV. Jesse Hirsch, researcher and public speaker, Research interests focus largely on the intersection of technology and politics, in particular, artificial intelligence and democracy. And Dr. Emma Bryant, visiting research associate of human rights at Bard College in New York City. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, we'll take a look at the federal government's new gun legislation, Bill C-21. Hope you can join us then. Thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.